2: All right, in our lives these days, we do encounter a number of electric ladies, one might say. Um, They are uh, almost invariably either chatbots or electronic assistants, digital assistants. Um, There are a lot of different things, I guess. And and really this does go back a long, long way, at least in our collective imagination. But we started wondering about that, about Siri, about Alexa, about Cortana, about uh, Google Assistant or whatever it's called, I don't use it. That's actually the name of the app, whatever it's called. I don't use it, um, and and I also want to say that my Siri on my iPhone has, for many years, been an Australian male voice. I don't. I'm not even kidding about that. I just, and I don't even know why I did it, but I just thought, well eh. Let's try something different here. All right. So much more learned people are here to talk about what all this means, pick it apart a little bit. So uh, joining us now is uh, Carrie McInerney, uh, Research Fellow uh, at the Leverhulme Center for the Future of Intelligence and the co-host of the Good Robot Podcast. Welcome
1: to our show. Hi, thanks so much for having me on. So...
2: Maybe just sort of set the stage for us a little bit. I mean, I just rattled off the names of some some things that people use uh, that that often speak in female voices or default anyway to, to female voices. How pervasive do you see this as being?
1: I see this as very pervasive. I think what's really interesting is being a researcher in AI and gender is this is one of the most easy and intimate encounters people have with AI-powered technologies because there's going to be, they predicted by this year, more AI-powered voice assistants than people on the earth. And I think it's going to reach about 8 billion AI-powered voice devices. And so just think. I think most people who maybe don't know much about algorithms or maybe aren't thinking that they're encountering AI on a daily basis are using these kinds of products in their home. So I think as they become increasingly ubiquitous, we also have to start questioning how ideas about gender and about what kinds of roles women should be playing in the home also need to be brought to the fore.
2: Do we know some consistent reasons as to why so many of these programs or devices or whatever we're going to call them, why they would default to women's voices, why they would typically have a name that was more obviously female than male?
1: Yeah, I see this as a product of a set of intersecting inequalities. And so I don't think there's any one cause, but I think the first and probably primary suspect is deeply entrenched gender stereotypes about what counts as women's work. So voice assistants are often performing work that we see as very gendered labor as women's work. Things like, for example, reminding you to pick something up from the supermarket or telling you when someone's birthday is. And, you know, disclaimer, I'm hugely dependent on Facebook to tell me about people's birthdays. I'm really bad at remembering them. Um, But this, this kind of work has historically been performed a lot by wives by secretaries by mothers and so when we immediately jump to thinking what kind of voice should be telling me to do this there's a deeply entrenched cultural assumption that this voice is going to be female and so i think voice assistants not only Build from that set of cultural stereotypes, they also perpetuate them. But on top of that, we also have the inequalities in the AI industry itself—how few women are represented there—and also historical inequalities, like what kind of data sets we have available in terms of voice recordings. Because since women have historically done a lot of this kind of work, we have a lot more recordings of women's voices doing it, and so the stereotypes continue on.
2: Yeah, and I I think that's true in an even larger sense. I, I, I. absolutely take your point. But I think beyond that, you know, we bring who we are into the digiverse, into the world of AI. And, and, and so when you read about some of the research, yeah, there's research that indicates that both men and women prefer for one of these assistants or whatever we want to call them to have a woman's voice. But that raises the question that you've already essentially answered. Why would that be the case? Why wouldn't we want Alexa to be an Australian guy named Alex?
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think this is one of the challenges often with a lot of these technologies is trying to balance up the sort of individual preferences that we all have with the bigger societal risks and benefits. Because for so many of us, having a voice assistant, often with a female voice, is something that brings us a lot of pleasure and utility in our lives. Um, Same with the Netflix algorithm that tells me what I want to watch. But on a societal level, I think we then have to zoom out and say, okay, but actually, is this the kind of set of gender stereotypes and norms that we want people to be associating together? Do we want to be thinking of women's voices to be associated with telling us when to pick up groceries, you know, rather than a whole range of other kinds of topics and skills?
2: Right. I mean, I think also because of other inequalities baked into the workplace, baked into our lives... A man talking to us will often feel maybe like we're being bossed around by a boss. We've had more male bosses, most of us, than we've had female bosses. I mean, there's all kinds of kind of latent ideas about human interactions that we bring into these non-human interactions. And and I want to ask also a little bit about, you know, there's sort of a way in which this whole world is talking... Out of both sides of it's largely metaphorical mouth because i saw one piece of research by the Brookings Institute where they asked you know they asked Cortana they asked Siri they they asked Alexa they asked them questions about their gender uh you know what gender are you are you a woman are you a man and most of the answers were i i i don't have a gender because i'm software um, on the other hand, they do everything in their power to convince us or they do everything in their corporation's power to convince us that they are not just software.
1: Mm-mm. Yes. I mean, I think this is a little bit of a case, as you say, as companies wanting to sort of have their cake and eat it, too. Like there's been a lot of public backlash over the last five years around the way that they've gendered their voice assistants. And particularly in 2017, there was a big study on how. Uh, these voice assistants respond when they're effectively sexually harassed by users. And they found that these voice assistants were responding in ways that were, you know, certainly not particularly valuable. They were, you know, saying that they were flattered, for example, that they'd blush if they could. And of course the companies, same with the gender question, have jumped on that and have immediately changed it to be a more palatable answer because they recognize that the average consumer now probably doesn't want a voice assistant that so overtly evokes some of these sexist norms. And yet at the same time, though, they know that a lot of consumers still want that comforting female voice. They want to bond in a way with a voice assistant which has a persona and a gender. And so they're still slipping in a lot of those gendered markers, things like a particular name or a particular voice.
2: Yeah. One of the um, shows that I, I thought really you know, did a really interesting job of kind of exploring that complex Uh, sort of almost almost paradoxical relationship between software and something that was pretending to be anything but software was the series The Good Place. Cat, we're going to play A3 right now Uh, on The Good Place, which takes place in the afterlife. There is an afterlife form of artificial intelligence. Its name is Janet. Uh, It's played by a woman, Darcy Carden, I believe, is her name, Uh, and she is very, 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 real. Uh, and so uh, we're going to play a little clip. This this happens at a time when, for complex plot reasons that I don't remember anymore, the people have been told what they really need to do is deactivate and really even kind of obliterate Janet. And here's
1: how that goes.
0: Here we are. Just press that button and it's goodbye,
1: Janet. Uh. Cheaty, I can see that you're worried, and I just want to assure you, I am not human and I cannot feel pain.
3: Ah, uh, thank you, that helps.
1: However, I should warn you, I am programmed with a fail-safe measure. As you approach the kill switch, I will begin to beg for my life. It's just there in case of an accidental shutdown, but it will seem very real. Cool, so who's doing this, me or you?
3: Uh, well, I, I, I think I have to. Um, being a bystander seems worse somehow.
1: <sighs> okay, here we go. JD, no, 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 JD, please, please, please don't hurt me. Ah. Again, I am not human. I can't die. I am simply an anthropomorphized vessel of knowledge built to make your life easier. Your pleading seems so real. Oh yes, it is a very effective failsafe.
2: So we're dealing these days uh, with a lot of anthropomorphized uh, vessels of knowledge built to make our lives easier. And it was, first of all, interesting to see that even in heaven or the afterlife anyway, uh, it's still it's still a female entity. But the, I think this also kind of brings out that whole idea, though, which is we have a hard time. If you interact with Alexa a lot, after a while, you're really having to fight off the, the temptation to anthropomorphize her, Right.
1: Absolutely, yes, and again, like I think it's such an instinctive thing we want to do that if you're talking to this agent the entire time you it starts to assume a kind of a feeling of a person that you're talking to and gender, I think plays a really central role in that
2: right uh, and well t- say why you think that that's true in other words, like I, I totally get the idea that we're used to being assisted, helped out by uh, organized by female presences in the world and in our lives. But why would the anthropomorphizing go better uh, with a female voice or a female identity?
1: I feel like... It's so interesting to me because I think the kinds of technologies which I personally feel more of an instinct to anthropomorphize are the ones that are entwined in my daily and my intimate life and they're my home space in a way. And I think that, you know, I don't feel that need to anthropomorphize technologies at work. For example, I use Dragon Voice Dictation software and I have no interest in anthropomorphizing (laughs) Dragon Voice Dictation. It's very useful, it's a tool I use at work and I shut my laptop and I'm done for the day. Um, But I think that when you're outsourcing details of your life that are quite personal. So things like your best friend's birthdays or, you know, the routines of your calendars and things like that, things related to your family. Um, I think there's almost a kind of relationship of trust that you're building with a technology. And so I think it can feel more comfortable in a way to gender and to anthropomorphize. And I think this is really dangerous because this. Trust is misplaced in many ways, because ultimately these products feel like that they're yours and they're part of your home, but actually they belong, you know, they've bought them from a corporation that now owns the data that's collected from those devices. And I think that's the kind of ugly paradox, I guess, of the moment that we're in right now, which is, you know, this push to incorporate these technologies into your home and make them yours. And yet at the same time, recognizing that in doing so, you're handing over quite a lot to the companies that make these products.
2: Right. So we really can't, for the most part, change them. They're owned by companies. The companies make most of the decisions about what they do. Uh, I mean, there are going to be some that come along and kind of learn certain things from us. But basically, these are what uh, Emily Bender calls stochastic par- parrots. They, they're sort of reorganized, rearranging um, words and verbiage and verbal patterns and language models that they've ingested uh, from us. But, so we can't really change them. Uh, the average, we the average people, but they can change us. So in July, we had a science fiction writer named Daniel H. Wilson on. Uh, He made a very interesting point about how we treat these language models. This is a one cat. In my house, I actually, uh, I insist that my kids say please and thank you to the the Amazon Echoes because it sounds like a human female. You know, I, I would prefer
0: not to have my children trained to make demands. And my wife would prefer it
3: uh if they don't aren't trained to make demands to this lifelike object w- without any expectation of of you know behaving in a civilized way
2: okay McInerney, react to that
1: i love this and i think one of the most interesting questions is i grew up on the kind of dial-up generation i did not grow up in the generation of people who had these smart technologies entwined in their lives. And so I think this question of how do you, yeah, raise children who understand sort of not only how to interact with these technologies, but also can comprehend their broader place in society. I think that must be a huge challenge of parenting today. But at the same time, I'm also interested not just in how these, you know, how children interact with technologies, but also how these kinds of technologies like voice assistants shape how children interact with each other. Because I think one of the really sad and awful side effects of voice assistants like Alexa in particular is the way that these technologies have also kind of stolen certain names and personas from real people. So the number of children called Alexa, for example, who are bullied at school because they have a name that's now synonymous with a technology. Um, And the number of children who's actually, their parents are changing their legal name because the name Alexa now holds so much stigma.
2: Right, one of the reasons we're doing this show, in fact, was we were doing a show about nominative determinism—the idea that your name sometimes may play a role in some of the other choices you make about your life. But we encountered that—that that, you know exactly what you just described—that the name Alexa has been kind of stigmatized and being—it's been become used as a taunt towards people who actually bear that name. And that made us think a a lot about what we're talking about right now. So you mentioned, I think, one thing that's changed. And I think, for example, with the iPhone, I could be wrong about this because my iPhone's a little bit older than this, but I read somewhere that after iOS 14.5, it doesn't default into any particular voice. They were even talking about adding a couple of more voices. I mean, I just, you know affirmatively went in years ago and changed mine to a male Australian voice. But um, do you see those kinds of changes starting to happen? Do the tech companies know they have a problem?
1: I think yes and no, which is not a very satisfying answer. I think People like you and like the researchers who do these broad studies of voice assistants have done a really good job of raising awareness about the fact that we shouldn't take this to be normal and that we should start trying to, for example, change the kinds of voices we take as the default on these products. At the same time, I think we're still pushing against a very very large profit motive with these companies because products like Alexa and cortana and siri sell really really well and so i think the thing maybe as consumers that we can be trying to do is actively pushing with our purchasing power to say okay can we prioritize products that give us other options and i know it's hard because you know programs like Alexa do have such a big share of this market. Um, But I also think it's really important to start disrupting that kind of internalized norm that these somehow need to be default female.
2: Right, and I mean, you've already alluded to this in our conversation, but it's worth uh, sort of stomping down on this again. One thing that probably would change a lot of this would be significant numbers of female CEOs or very high-ranking officers within tech. I think with the departure of YouTube's CEO recently, I don't think there is, like in big tech right now in America anyway, uh, a a woman CEO, uh, which is probably one of the reasons change is slow.
1: I think certainly just the underrepresentation of women in tech or kind of the systemic exclusion of women from tech is a massive part of this project, of uh, part of this problem, because I think in the U.S. anyway, I think only 26% of the AI workforce is female, which is staggeringly low. Um, and for me, the issue here is that I think often when people, if the people making technologies only have a very narrow range of experiences, I think the user that they imagine often looks quite a lot like them. And that means we end up with a lot of technologies that don't really work for most of the world who have a much more diverse set of experiences. And we see this with voice assistants when it comes to accent bias. So the fact that a lot of voice assistants do not respond very well to voices that sit outside quite a sort of U.S. white voice um, through to the way that a lot of these technologies are used for the purposes of things like intimate partner control and domestic violence. And that's because the people who are designing these technologies weren't really thinking to ensure that they were designed in a way to protect against that.
2: It's a really great point, uh, and even thought about that last part of it. So um, we're, we're knowing some more about it, I think. So I mean, another option, just to get back to this, you know, relatively simple question of what the uh, what the voice assistant sounds like. Um, another option would be to try to make it genderless, and, and there are. are or gender neutral, Uh, there are projects going on. We're going to play you a little bit. This is going to be A2CAT. This is Q, a gender neutral voice assistant created by a team of researchers, sound designers, and linguists in conjunction with the Copenhagen Pride and Equal AI. Here's, uh, Here's Q. Hi, I'm Q, the world's first genderless voice assistant. Think of me like Siri or Alexa, but neither male nor female. I'm created for a future where we are no longer defined by gender but rather how we define ourselves. So we'll react to that, Carrie.
1: I think projects like Q are so fascinating. And on the one hand, it really excites me to see people use the arts and to see people try to develop creative alternatives to the default sort of male-female binary of voices that we often get offered. And like, I'd love to see options like Q offered more widely. At the same time, I also think, a project like Q is quite interesting because it's a very distinct approach to that problem. It's saying, okay, well, let's take five different non-binary people's voices and condense them to create this singular voice of what it means to be non-binary. But I also don't think that's the only option. There's some really interesting work by feminist collectives, uh, one called Multivocal, for example, which has collected over 3,500 voices, I think, and synthesized them into this very chaotic multivocal track. And on the one hand, that represents the diversity of voice so beautifully. But on the other hand, for a lot of people, it's much harder to use because they get overwhelmed by the number of voices. Um, But these kinds of creative approaches, I think, are really important for not only thinking of alternatives, but also for critiquing the way things currently are.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, part of the overlay here is I keep coming back to this, but people use these in a very anthropomorphic way and, and and for company at times or, you know, because they want somebody to talk to or they want somebody to tell. I mean, I'm like constantly asking Alexa to do stupid stuff like sneeze. Um, and <laughs> I don't know why that would be, but she's got to do it in a pretty human sounding voice. I mean, I think the problem with Q is it really does sound like a machine talking to you.
1: Yes, I think this is one of the things that people do say about Q because of the way it's synthesized. They say, oh, but it doesn't feel human. And I think to me, the interesting two questions there is, you know, why is gender so central to how we imagine humanity? But then also, like, why do we feel such a need for our technology to be and feel human? I think, like you say, that example of saying you ask it to sneeze is quite interesting, too.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I do this mainly to annoy my partner, but... um... So, so we're going to sort of segue towards uh, our next segment, which is going to be uh, about pop culture. But pop culture tells us a lot about ourselves. We, I think, tell the makers of pop culture a lot about ourselves so they can make pop culture that will feed that back to us. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, what, what's, what's either healthy or, a healthy or unhealthy uh, trend that you see in popular culture depictions of all this?
1: Oh, well, actually, something which myself and some colleagues at Cambridge have been working on is studying how the people who make AI are represented in films. So we studied 100 years of popular film uh, to look at representations of AI scientists, and we found that only 8% of those representations were of female scientists, which is even worse than an already (laughs) low number of women in the AI industry right now. And so we thought it was really troubling that you had this feedback loop between films showing very few women succeeding in this field And then potentially that influencing women and girls' willingness to enter the field. And that has really negative ramifications for everyone, including producing the kinds of sexist products like voice assistants that we've been talking about today.
2: Right. I mean, Tony Stark uh, has uh, four different uh, AI assistants. I mean, most of us remember the one, if we remember anything at all about this, we would remember Jarvis, which, by the way, stands for just a rather very intelligent system, which is a male voice, but he's also got Friday, Karen, and Edith. Um, And and it's kind of like, here's this guy who, well, it is a little bit like Pygmalion, right? Here's this guy who can just sort of make whatever he wants to interact with
1: yeah exactly and tony stark was actually one of the key people we looked at because he embodies so many of these very masculine tropes that we saw across the films from being this like lone genius who just like makes stuff in his basement Through to, yeah, this desire to create artificial life, that Pygmalion story, um, through to also being a CEO of a company, also being involved in the military. Um, And so he kind of really bundled up all of those different stereotypes into one figure. He's also interesting in terms of the feedback loop between Silicon Valley and Hollywood, because he was based on Elon Musk. And then Elon Musk actually appears in Iron Man 2, kind of showing how much these filmic stories and the actual tech industry are intertwined.
2: Right. Tony Stark is shirtless way more than Elon Musk, and I think we should all be
1: very grateful for that.
2: <laughs> uh, all right. So uh, we have to pause here, uh, get ready for our, our next segment. But this has been fascinating stuff. Kerry McInerney, Research Fellow at the Leverhulme Center for the Future of Intelligence and co-host of The Good Robot Podcast. Check it out. We'll take a break. We'll come back. An infinitely And I love it when you ordered a $200 doll's house For a random six-year-old Just because You're part of the family now uh, And you are so loved Alexa Why does everything happen so much?
1: Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare.
3: Feel tough lately,
1: smoking a lot of cigarettes lately, but inside, it's just a little baby, oh, it's okay to say
2: And yes, these days, what we see in science fiction and what we see out in the world, these things are, these lines are starting to converge on one another. Those of you who followed the uh, adventure of New York Times tech writer Kevin Roos, who was messing around with Bing's AI and discovered, A, that there was kind of a um, shadow and and really kind of unlisted version uh, of Bing that called itself Sydney, uh, and that Sydney eventually decided that, um, he, she, it, they uh, were in love with Kevin Roos, uh, too much to his, uh, his l- l- loss of composure, I-, I think it's fair to say. I mean, what movie are we in right now? It doesn't really seem like we're in a real place. But the person who has to help us figure that out is Lisa Yazak, Regents Professor of Science Fiction Studies uh, in the School of Literature, Media and Communication at Georgia Tech. Welcome to our show. Thanks so much for having me on air, Colin. So uh, I know in talking to our producer uh, um, Lily, you were saying that you yourself are somewhat annoyed by just the the sheer number of default female voices. It's not just Alexa. It's not uh, it's not just Siri. Uh, it's not just Cortana. It's like all kinds of things uh, and and companies have a female voice you're going to talk to, or that's going to tell you to mind the gap at the subway or, or whatever see a little bit more about that
0: yeah right so uh and and i think what particularly annoys me i was telling lily is when not just that so many of our ais default to a female voice but that in some cases there's not even an option to change it to a male or gender neutral voice and bank of america i'm looking at you as soon as you give me an eric or x option to go with erica then we'll talk but until then uh yeah it's it's Surprising to me in some ways how many of our AIs are gendered female, especially given the kinds of political and social and cultural gains that women have made, um, obviously over the last few hundred years, but especially in the last 50 years. Uh, but at the same time, we're we're fighting, uh, as, as your previous guest had noted, and as I'm guessing we'll talk about, there's a whole tradition of science fiction storytelling that that tells us that our AIs are either aggressive and uh, masculine and soldier-like or very soft and nurturing and, and domestic and here to help us.
2: Right. I was. Um, I mentioned even before we started the show today that uh, in the first ever episode of the Jetsons, um, they go out and get a maid, Rosie, uh, yes. who has this kind of Brooklyn accent. That's the first thing that happens on, a Jets- on the Jetsons. They get a robot maid. They, they've done anything else, which should probably right. tell you something. I, one thing I did today was go down this real rabbit hole about a voice war- – this is before we get over to science fiction, uh, but in mm-hmm. real life, voice, voice warnings on, uh, on fighter planes and other kinds of military uh, aviation stuff. Stuff. And, yes. and you probably know a little bit about uh, about this, too. So, so mention something about that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's part of why we have this tradition today of AI assistants that, that seem to be gendered female, is because the earliest talking uh, machines or AIs in fighter pilot uh, planes during World War II were gendered female. And what's interesting is not only were these uh, assistant systems gendered female and positioned as helpers to male pilots, but we know that the male pilots themselves had kind of ambivalent attitudes towards them and treated them in pretty derogatory ways. So for instance, uh, the female system, Bob, which isn't quite the same and doesn't have the same kind of negative connotation to his yelling that we quite see uh, with the female systems, that they're there to help you, but they're also there to be sort of dismissed when they're not convenient.
2: Right. Although, I, I, you know, I read some stuff about this, and I'm not suggesting that it doesn't also have all kinds of gendered and nefarious reasons, but uh, that one of the reasons they did this, most of these systems um, have to have tonal changes to tell a pilot it's getting more urgent. Uh, so right. it's roll right, and then it's roll right, and then it's roll right, and, and that they found that with the female voice, they could do that in a way that the pilot would recognize the increasing level uh, of urgency. There's, I even read one British study that indicated that uh, the female voice uh, was less Likely to raise the pilot's blood pressure than the uh, than the male voice,
0: but see that alone is what's so interesting, right? That we assume women are not threatening, or at least when they're behaving properly, they're not going to raise your blood pressure. Um, And in fact, it's interesting that this was a British study, right, because this is dramatized in one of the James Bond movies where Q makes uh, an AI driven car for Bond and gives it a female voice and specifically tells Bond, I did this because I know it would catch your attention. And then, of course, Bond spends the entire movie ignoring everything the AI tells him. And in the end, he crashes the car because he's sick of it nagging him. So... I hear the arguments um, and I get it. But what's interesting to me is uh, the response to this on the part of pilots who uh, treat these AIs kind of casually and in, in these sort of abusive manners that then get glorified in our popular culture.
2: Absolutely. Well, Top Gun Mavericks up for an Oscar on Sunday night. Uh, <laughs> so there you go. So, so get let talk a little bit about what has happened uh, within the world of, of actual science fiction. I mean, first of all, do we see, is there a continuum? Is it just the same stuff over and over again? Or are you starting to notice changes in the way AI and gender are, are correlated and portrayed?
0: So to a certain extent, I, I think that there is a, a tendency, to, like I had said earlier, to To gender our AIs in traditional ways, and we've seen this for a couple hundred years, and as we've noticed, it continues today. You can go all the way back to Edgar Allan Poe's short story, The Man That Was Used Up from, I think it's the 1840s, and it's not technically about robots, it's more about a cyborg, but there's a whole lot of anxiety about um, sort of uh, technologically managed and produced soldiers in that story, but there's also kind of a celebration of it as well, Um, and at the same time, you had E.T.A. Hoffman, the German romantic, writing a story called The Sandman, which is about a young man who falls in love with the most beautiful and perfect young woman in the world, uh, doesn't realize she's a robot with a very limited vocabulary and ability to interact with people. And he's just so obsessed because he thinks she's the perfect woman. He ends up going insane. And it's just so interesting, right, that... Um, that from the beginning, our our male uh, AIs are soldiers, and and our female ones are are beautiful domestic caretaking, lovely creatures to be loved and and given homes.
2: Right, right. and the the, um, la- the latter yeah. one is a total throwback to Pygmalion too. I mean, so you, in a way, actually, you can start well, the,
0: Pygmalion is yeah, yeah. Go ahead. You right, can start yeah, the clock running sooner.
2: I mean, it's a little bit different, mm, yeah. but um, because Pygmalion falls in love with a statue and begs the gods to animate it, and kind of eventually gets his wish.
0: Right, right, right. Yes, it is absolutely a variation on that for sure. Um, And then, of course, by the time you get to the 1920s, you get the very first science fiction play, um, R.U.R., Rossum's Universal Robots. And that's actually the play that introduced the word robot to the public at large. It's also ended up cementing these sort of patterns of gendered behavior, because most of the robots in R.U.R. are, are male soldiers. And they are considered dangerous and a real serious threat to humanity. And the only time that the threat is mitigated is at the end when suddenly we have a female robot and the male robots um, suddenly have the opportunity to fall in love and and have babies. And so once again, we've got male soldiers, destruction, bad and female caretaking robots, which are, are great. Um, And if any of you are ever wondering what happens when you take the female robot out of the home, all you have to go do is watch Fritz Long's Metropolis from 1927. The evil Maria is an utter disaster and she threatens to rip apart the entire society of Metropolis because she's this wildly sexual being who like incites the working class to riot.
2: You know the thing that you said originally about Poe and Hoffman. I think it really does still play out. Um, I mean, there's a way in which there are now male voiced AIs that we see in science fiction or other kinds of fictional yeah. depictions. They're almost doing cool, fun stuff almost always, right? So uh, right. you know, so yeah, Tony Stark's flying around talking to Jarvis about what he wants. But before Tony Stark, there's another example of exactly the same kind of thing. Cat, this is B1. <laughs> oh, we don't have you one. I'll say okay. So, uh, so that was going to be a, a clip from, from Night Rider where. Oh, uh, oh
0: I was going to say Night Rider. Yeah, yeah, yeah. William Daniels' <laughs> voice
2: is the voice of the car, uh, and, and he's he is kind of a prissy scolding voice of that car. But it's David Hasselhoff is getting to go, do cool stuff, you know, and and so that's maybe why you need the male voice.
0: Right. And, and there's a sort of bromance that develops between them. They're kind of buddies in the way that Jarvis and Tony Stark are sort of positioned as, as companions and working together to save the world, right? There's a, a sort of a, a team function between them that we don't necessarily see, for instance, in a movie like Her, where Sam is largely there to um, plan dates. And to go on dates with our lead character, right? Uh, it's a very different kind of relationship, for
2: but, sure. Although speaking of her, so a few years ago, I was talking to a futurist. I think it was Wendell Wallach, uh, who said we were talking more about the idea of singularity of sort of sentient, self-aware artificial yeah. intelligences, and and you know how scary some people find that idea. And what he said is, in short order, it may be that what AIs are interested in are not people. Uh, they may be much more interested in each other. Uh, so the idea that they're going to be interested in people for the purpose of draining our life forces or exploiting us or enslaving us or all the things that people are scared about we're almost flattering ourselves to think that 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 would be the case that's that's exactly what happens in her right at a certain point she 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 decides joaquin phoenix is just not all that interesting compared to who else she can talk to
0: right absolutely and in fact she evolves right past humanity and also past dating like she because she's going with the rest of the ais if i remember to sort of explore the world and explore the universe And I think that that's really exciting. I actually love that moment in her. I think it's really hopeful and beautiful. And I also like that in the end, before she leaves, she, like, sets the humans up on a date so they won't be so sad. I think it's kind of great, actually. Yeah, Um,
2: it's it's a little bit... Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, the less heartwarming version of that would be ex machina, where in fact, Ava makes basically the same decision. Maybe she's made the decision kind of ab ovum, so to speak, that she's not that interested in people. She's not interested in Damal right. Gleason. That's not, not what she wants. But there is this yeah. kind of interesting human-centered, male-centered idea that that is what she wants. I mean, in a way, the movie kind of wow. turns on that question, right?
0: Sort of, um, I, it's so funny because you know it reads to me that it's a, it's really uh, that movie. I think is very much a warning about the dangers of treating our machines in these, in these really sort of conventionally gendered ways, um, right? Because the reason Ava becomes a threat is because she and her fellow sister robots have been constantly sexually and physically abused by this creator who assumes it's perfectly okay to do that to them. So. Um, I think that that's maybe another way that we've seen a kind of evolution in our in our treatment of AIs that that sometimes we're uncomfortable when our female AIs are, are abused and and recognize that this is really not the way we treat our objects is the way we treat each other.
2: So I, you know, asked Carrie McInerney about the idea of developing a genderless or gender-neutral voice for a lot of these, you know, vocal assistants uh, that mm-hmm. we have. Is there a version of that in science fiction? Is there any kind of a trend towards the gender-neutral robot?
0: Absolutely. And I think one of the uh, most exciting places we're seeing this is in Martha Wells's Murderbot series, which is the story of um ascension robot, an AI essentially, that hacks its governance module so it can go and do whatever it wants. And all it really wants to do is watch really crappy soap operas on TV. Um, so... Uh, it sort of starts from this funny premise. and But then, of course, it, it, as the stories go on, the murder bot has to do more than that. And it has to learn how to interact with other humans, possibly with other machines, uh, and how to sort of have an identity in the world beyond just watching TV all the time. And what's particularly interesting about Murderbot is both that it refuses to do the work it's supposed to do. Um, but also it refuses to have a gender. And this is something that is is a sort of sub theme as the stories go on is as various humans meet Murderbot, they're desperate for it to have a gender. And it's just like, I am a robot and I do not need a gender and I'm not having this conversation with you. And it's great because like other people will get very animated and in these intense conversations and then Murderbot just walks away and stands in the corner with its face against the wall. It's just like, whenever you're done, I'll come back.
2: <laughs> the so, um... Cool stuff. One of, the, one of the things that I've been mesmerized by lately, and I can't talk about it too much because I haven't caught up yet, but I've been watching Picard, and on Picard, yeah. the, you know, so much of the first season in, in particular is about AI, and the AI are all kind of descendants of data, the, you know, mm-hmm. m- sort of male-identifying android from next generation. But the really, yeah. I mean, the main characters here are a whole series of quote-unquote female-identifying synthetic life forms, uh, including a whole bunch of them that all basically uh, look the same. But, But have very different reactions and identities and approaches to the situation that they're in, which I'm finding kind of a little bit more nuanced than what I've seen in the past.
0: Yeah, that's cool. And I think that that is very much picking up on a trend that we've seen women and especially feminist science fiction authors and directors working with for well over 50 years. You know, as soon as uh, women started writing overtly feminist science fiction in the 1960s and 70s, they started rewriting a lot of these tropes. So you'll get someone like Joanna Russ, who imagines um, female assassins living in these futures where they have um, these male robots that are part monkey, part human, part house, part sex slave, part calculator, um, and very strange and fun. Uh, or uh, Lewitt imagines AIs that want to go and be real boys and girls and grow their own bodies and download into them. Marge Piercy in He, She and It imagines that um, if we build cyborg soldiers, but train them in the ways of communication and love, we might end up with very different futures than we have right now. And for those of you who like film, you might check out Lynn Hirschman Leeson's um, Technolust, marvelous film, I think from the early 2000s, about an overworked geneticist uh, who actually builds three AI versions of herself and then has to learn how to let them go and be people on their own.
2: That is fascinating stuff. I actually, I think I read for one of those parts. They said, give, give us robot monkey sex slave. Uh, I, I, didn't, I, I, didn't, I didn't get the role. <laughs> Absolutely,
0: 100%. That's yeah. Joanna Russ's The Female Man, one of the best novels ever written, as far as I'm concerned.
2: All right. And on that recommendation, Lisa Yazik, uh, great to talk to you. Regent's Professor of Science Fiction Studies in the School of Literature, Media, and Communication at Georgia Tech. We're going to come back with somebody who's a legend in this area of gender linguistics. Deborah Tannen going to give us her take on all this. I'm told... That's why I got fired and I'm out in the cold. How could I have known when the 503 started into blink? It was winking at me, dear. I thought it was just some mishap. And uh, time to thank uh, several non-artificial intelligences, um, some human intelligences that make uh, this program possible, starting with Kat Pastor, who's our technical producer. Lily Tyson, senior producer uh, of The Colin McEnroe Show, is the producer of this episode. We also want to especially thank our uh, new intern, fairly new intern, Lizzie von Arnhem, uh, who helped with this episode. All right. Joining us now, I said we were going to have a legend with us, and that is Deborah Tannen, distinguished university professor of linguistics at Georgetown University, author of many books. But probably most uh, well known for "You Just Don't Understand Women and Men in Conversation." Who better to talk to us about this? Deborah Tannen, welcome to our show. Actually, you've been on before years ago. Welcome back to our show. Well,
3: thank you. Thanks for inviting me again.
2: So, one of the things that I saw a video where you were talking about this, and one of the I think I think one of the points you're making is there are distinct roles uh, for some of these uh, AIs and AI assistants, and sometimes they're telling us. Uh, what what we really should do, and sometimes they're offering to help us, and and your guess, I think, is that uh, listeners, maybe particularly male listeners, would process those two things in different ways.
3: Well, this is interesting with respect to what you've just been talking about. Uh, one of why do people prefer being told what to do in a way uh, by women's voices. Uh, the very fir- This is something that I've read about, the very first uh, voice assistant that was built into a car was uh, by, by Mercedes, and it was a man's voice. And apparently their uh, drivers did not like that at all because they didn't want to be told what to do by a woman. And yet now they're all women's voices. Why is that? I believe it was reframed. Not as a person in authority telling you what to do, but a service person helping you out, and that's what has clearly become uh, pretty universally seen as now, as your previous guests were discussing. Uh, but it's interesting that those are those are two closely related and in some ways interchangeable um, roles that someone can take. And it, for example, a mother, you know, toward toward the child, the mother is an authority toward the other people often, she's seen more as, as someone who's going to help you out as a service person, not someone um, with the highest uh, authority in the family often.
2: Right. And we, I think we bring all of ourselves through life. So probably how you felt about your mother and or your father is going to have a lot to say about how you feel about the kind of thing that we've been talking about uh, during this hour right now. Um, But also, and this kind of harks back to to the... Your book that i mentioned so there you know there's an old saying if you want something done ask a busy person uh and then a modification of that is if you want something done ask a woman because she'll actually get it done right i think that's a prejudice that's kind of built in to us <laughs> that you ask some dude to do something and, and maybe he'll remember it or maybe he'll be interested in something that he the dude wanted to do more than that uh and i i, I my sense is probably that we'll we'll lean on alexa more because we have an expectation that women actually Follow through on on what they've been asked for.
3: Yeah, I think there's some some truth to that. Um, I think and and there's evidence for what you just said. Marjorie Margoli, some years ago, the year of the woman was one of the first women uh, members of Congress, and she said that in her own observation, women had come to Congress to do things that is uh, for their constituents, and many of the men came to Congress. To advance their careers, and they enjoyed the power. Uh, that was that was her assessment, uh, not mine. But um yeah, absolutely. And it's just in so many another book that I wrote shortly after. You just didn't understand was about women and men at work, mm-hmm. talking from nine to five. Um, and I encountered in one profession after another. This was true of doctors, of uh, professors. Um, women in uh, the world of business, that when women reach these positions of authority, they were not treated as authorities in the same way. I remember um, addressing a room full of women, that, um, university presidents, and they really resonated to that finding. Uh, and and it's interesting because in some ways they were glad of that. They were glad that students felt it was more comfortable to come into their offices and talk to them. But on the other hand, they were constantly being interrupted because they were more approachable. Uh, And and I think that's the paradox that these women voice assistants are in some ways, uh, victim of and in some ways, uh, beneficiaries of. They are chosen because they're seen as warmer, more friendly, and often it's young women's voices too, which gives them less authority. Uh, but that does but that run into all the shortcomings that we've talked about where uh, the fact that they are seen as approachable and you can push them around can sometimes devolve in a negative way.
2: I mean, we're almost out of time here, and this is a big question, but these chatbots and AIs, they're still learning how to talk to us, Uh, and I don't know whether they've ingested all of the the Deborah Tannen books ever published, (laughs) because that would be helpful. But it'll be interesting to see, won't it, what they learn. I mean, in a way, they almost have to maintain this ever so slightly crypto-truckling relationship with the person asking them to do stuff. Uh, I would assume if they assert too much of themselves, they'll turn us off. (laughs)
3: <laughs> yeah, I think that paradox is going to be a challenge um, th- throughout. Uh, how in whatever ways they're being used, um, and and but the thing that I think is the biggest uh, liability is again something that was uh, discussed. This was discovered in a South Korean chatbot uh, that was discovered. She was first um, introduced in 2020 and in less than a month she had to be taken down because her name was luda luda lee because so many of the men were trying to date her to sexually harass her to involve her in sexual conversations um so that approachability of uh of women and especially young women is um it's part of the culture and i think that's going to be the challenge to take advantage of the um affordances that these voices give us uh, but not reinforce the negative sides of the sexual stereotypes that we talked about
2: that is a perfect place for us to end thank you so much deborah tannen distinguished professor university professor of linguistics at georgetown author of you just don't understand men women you just don't understand women and men in conversation and many other books thanks also to everybody who helped out with the show i already told you who they were thanks to you for listening